Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. So last Sunday, if you didn't catch it, you can catch it online, but Thad opened up talking about Judges, the book of Judges. And at the end of his sermon, he talked about something called the sin cycle or what we call it actually is the redemption cycle. I just want to spend a little time on that. Because over the last like, 11 years, one of the main teachings that came out of me being here on staff was this idea of where you start your story. And for me, it's changed how I look at God, how I look at my relationship with God, how I look at other people. And so I'd love to spend a little time this morning talking about that. So if you've been involved in the church for very long, if you've heard a message about judges, there's this idea of the sin cycle. So the Israelites did wrong. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then someone came and ruled over them. Some sort of oppression happened. And then the Israelites cry out to God. God comes and redeems his people. And then they have peace. And then within the story of Judges, it happens all over again. Israelites do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so growing up, it seemed like what I always heard was a focus on their sin. Man, if those Israelites can't believe they kept sinning, I can't believe they kept doing wrong over and over again. And this focus has always been on what the Israelites did wrong. Not on who our God is. Because where you start your story matters. One way that we brought it up over the years is the idea of, do we focus on Genesis 3? So that's the part of the scripture where Adam and Eve sin and fall away from God. Or do we start our story in Genesis 1, on the creation story, where everything's good, because you look at the creation story, there are other creation stories around this time that really focuses on like the chaos of the world. And our creation story is different because it focuses on God bringing order. And so when God made things, he brought order to them, and he says they were good. And then when he got to mankind, created them and the whole thing all together, and it was like, it's very good. But then we jump over to Genesis 3, and then man sins. It always seems it's focused on the sin of man, the evil that they've done. Not on a God that keeps redeeming his people. Not on a God that keeps going, cry out to me, I'll be there. Because in Judges, whenever the Israelites cry out, what does God do? He makes a plan for them to bring them back to him. And so if you look at your own life, because I look at my own life through all these years that I've been in the church. I've been following Christ. Like, it's the same cycle. Like, I keep doing things, I keep messing up, and then, then I call out, cry out to God, and God forgives me, and I feel this peace, like, oh, it's okay. Like, I can move forward, and then I do it again, and I do it again. I'm hoping you guys are similar to me, that I'm not alone in this. But it seems it focuses on like me and my sin. And not on the character of God where God redeems. And like he spoke in Genesis 1, he keeps crying out and saying, you're enough. You are, have value. You have worth. And if we can leave this morning with one thing, I'd love for you to leave the idea of that wherever you're at in your life or whatever's going on, there's a God that loves you immensely that says that you have value and that you have worth. For your story, if you look at your life, 
Don't start off with your sin. Guess what? We've all sinned. We've all made mistakes. We're all going to make more mistakes. What I feel that does for those, especially that have been around for a long time uh, with following Christ is it almost creates like a fear of failure. Like, I don't know what to do because I don't want to mess up. I don't know if I should start doing this or this or this or whatever, because I just don't want to, I just don't want to do something that's not God's path, not God's direction. And it's almost like it shuts you down. Starting your story with a God who redeems is, hey, it's okay that you make mistakes. It's okay that you try. Continue to have that relationship with him and just like desire him and you'll help. You might make some mistakes, but that's okay. We learn through it. We grow through it. We allow God to make something good out of it. But when you start your story and look at your life, don't look at all your mistakes, but look at a God that loves you and cares about you. Guess what? Over the next year, you guys are going to make mistakes. Sin, fall away, whatever that might look like. But when you're questioning, does God still love me? It's yes, that God loves you. Because it's not about a sin cycle. It's not focused on you. It's focused on a, a character of God, the redemption of a God that is always waiting there for us to cry out to him. So we are going to look at Ehud today. Uh, prior to getting ready for this uh, sermon, I was thinking like the most time I spent on this, like, this story was probably when I was in junior high. As a junior high boy, this story has violence and it's grotesque in some ways. I'm like, oh, that's a perfect junior high boy story. And so when I read this, I, this is just from the Bible. So this is what it says. Uh, so what I'm going to do, I just want to go ahead and read the whole story. So you get the whole idea. And then we'll walk through the story together and I'll pull out some parts of the story. So you can go up, throw up judges there. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Egon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Amorites and the Malachites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Psalms. And the people of Israel served Eglon and the king of Moab 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera the Benjamite, a left-handed man, the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And he had made himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he had bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And he had said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and he had reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into the belly. And the hilt was also went in after the blade, and the fat enclosed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, 
Surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the school chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. He had escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he had arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Uh, you can see why a junior high boy would love this story. There's like stabbing a big fat man, and the sword disappears, and dung came out, and the attendants thought the guy was, you know, relieving himself. Like, perfect story for a junior high boy. And so that was always my question. Like, so now what when I talk about this message? And so what's this walk through the story? So in the first verse here, or verse 12, you want to bring that up? Corbin. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, Eglon, the king of Moab against Israel, because they have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Do one more. And he gathered himself the Amorites and the Malachites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Psalms. So in reading this, one of the things when you look at the culture of the day, when they talk about kingdoms fighting each other, because it wasn't just army against army or leader against leader or king against king. It was God against God. And so the writer of Judges, when he's writing this, he will not give the Moabites, Malachites, Amorites any sort of idea that their God be the God of Israel. So it's the idea of when the Lord of Israel strengthened the army of Moab. So it gives the idea that the, the writer of Judges recognizes that it's the God of Israel who's a strong God in this. There's no gods of the Amorites, the Moabites, being mentioned here at all in, in the way of them winning the war. Because I think part of this, when you were like reading through, okay, what is God doing here in the midst of all of this? Like, why did God allow this to happen in some way? There's all these questions that keep popping up in my mind of why there's a violence that happened, or like, why is this the path that God used? Some of those answers I just don't know very well. But I do know, when looking at this story, is it wasn't the gods of the other countries that were more powerful, that were stronger. But the writer of Judges had to say, like, okay, it's the God of Israel, and the God of Israel let this happen. Because he's the one that's in control. He's the one that is strong. And when it mentions the city of Psalms, uh, that's the city of Jericho. And one reason why it's important because it was a major trade route to Jerusalem. So if Eglon was able to hold on to Jericho, he was able to hold on to the financial peace of Jerusalem. That's why they put tribute to Eglon, so they could keep using the trade routes there. Go ahead and throw the next section up. 
So then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up them for a deliverer. So the Israelites, it's been 18 years that they've been having the Moabites over the top of them, Eglon over the top of them. Man, 18 years is a long time. I was thinking with the idea of, like if you were on your like 20 years of age right now, like you don't know what life was like before 9-11. I was, uh, the Matrix is coming out, another one is coming out again. And there was this meme about someone like, well, if I could be plugged back into like the 1990s, I would totally do that. Because things changed after 9-11. Things were different. Like going to the airport, you don't know how easy it was. I remember when I was, ah, what age? Around eight or nine, my dad went to fly off. Like we walked my dad all the way up to the gate and said goodbye to him. Like it was, there was basically no security at all. Like it was just different. And so we think of those that were being raised during this time. Like they didn't know what life was like without having somebody that oppressed them. But there was those that did remember. And it took them 18 years to cry out to their God. 18 years of suffering to cry out to him. I was thinking of like, how did they get to that point? But then I turn it to myself and look at myself. Okay, I get that. When things are going easy or comfortable, it's pretty easy to start relying on other things in our lives. With the story of the judges, like the Israelites kept looking at other gods or following other gods. Well, we might not like follow other gods. We might follow other ways that bring us comfort. Like I personally love entertainment. It's like one of my favorite things. I could binge watch a whole season or seven in a row, no problem. But when I get stressed though, what do I turn, turn towards? Do I turn towards God or do I turn towards entertainment? Reality is I turn towards entertainment a ton. Like through the whole pandemic, one of the things that came up with how many people start day drinking, like a ton of people started day drinking. What, what did they turn towards? A God? Their God? Or they turned towards something that just brought them comfort for a while, comfort for that moment. We know what that looks like. It's easy to start making steps towards something else that brings us comfort and away from, from God. So 18 years that they did this. And then they cried out to the Lord. I love it, the idea as they cried out and the Lord heard them. It wasn't some God that's far away that said, like, like, well, you guys did this yourself. It's your fault. You get to live with it. I'm out but the Lord was there listening. So in your life right now, I think he's there ready to listen. And it might be like, like we're talking about like my life panning out the way I want it to. It might not look exactly like that, but in some way and somehow there's a God that hears your cries. Like don't stop crying out to him. He is there and he hears your cries and he's making a plan. Because that's what he did here with Ehud, that he made a plan. So in this passage, the Lord raised up them for deliverer Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. This is actually a really important piece of this whole story. 
So who in here is left-handed? Any left-handers? Oh, we have quite a few, actually. Um, I did preached on Thursday in Colfax, and there was like no left-handers at all. Uh, so my brother is left-handed. I'm right-handed. I hated sitting next to him at the kitchen table eating because he was older than me, so he always bought some trying to eat, and he's just knocking my hand. I'm like, so I always try to figure out a way not to sit next to him at all. But like, there's a piece of like left-handers even now that seems difficult in some ways, like writing, like you smearing your ink all across the paper. Um, that's my right hand, left-handed. See, I can't even do it. So I, so I teach, I teach uh, Coach T-Ball. I love the little kids and teaching them how to bat and throw. And this last season, we had a left-hander. And I was like, okay, so you stand on this side of the plate. I couldn't get my hands right. Like, how am I going to teach this little girl how to hit? And I can't even figure it out myself. Like, I remember going home that night and just practicing, okay, this hand, this hand, step. Like, I had to walk it all through. Because I'm just not used to, like, teaching somebody left-handed how to do those things. It's just it's not natural for me to, to do that. So I think of those that even are just left-handed. There's all these little things that add up. So my, my dad, he's quite a bit older than me, uh, when he went to elementary school to start learning how to write, they made him write with his right hand, even though he was left-handed. Like, they forced him to write with his right hand. So they were like, let's teach everybody this one way. In the story, the left-handed piece of this, what it literally means is unable to use his right hand. So there is conversations of what that actually means. Was he just left-handed? Um, I think the narrative of the story shows that something was wrong with his right hand. Like there was a deformed piece to it. Either something happened to him or he was born with it. And so he was left-handed. So in that culture, that doesn't mean something a lot different than just us having some inconveniences with using our left hand. Uh, what it, one thing it means is like eating is different. So I went to India in my 20s. And again, they kind of ate the same way that they would back in this culture. It's communal. So you'd have like bread, like they had naan. And you would take that naan and dip it into some sort of dish, like some stew or some sauce or something together. And so everyone in the group would eat together that way. So toilet paper wasn't really a thing. And so you had your hand for eating, and then you had your hand for wiping. Same in this culture. And so if you think if you're involved in a community, like you weren't able to use your right hand, only your left hand, how unclean would you be? Like, your wiping hand. He would want to eat with you. He would want to sit with you. And so my belief would be that Ehud here, in some ways, was ostracized by his community. And think of him even being a male trying to get married. Like, what father is going to send their daughter to him? Because can he actually provide for that family? Like, you're farming that difficult lifestyle to have a deformed hand, like today with our disabilities, we do a better job. We try to make sure that things are able to access and that jobs can't discriminate against them. But it wasn't back like that back then. If you had a deformity, like a lot of times we were pushed out of the community because you weren't able to help provide for it. And so in this story, so when it says the Benjamite, a left-handed man, the word Benjamin actually means son of the right hand. Later in scriptures, this is where some of the conversation comes, is because there's a whole group of fighters known to be able to sling with their left hand, super accurate. 
my belief is that because of Ehud, something changed there. Because those Benjamites were known to fight with a sword with their right hand. And so then you have a left-handed guy that wouldn't be able to really fight with a sword with his right hand. Like he had been known to be a strong fighter. And so you have this almost plain word saying, the son of left hand, a left-handed, or son of the right hand, a left-handed man. But God is working out something here. Like this weakness of Ehud that is there, that God is going to use it for something that's good for his people. And so Ehud created himself a sword uh, that was a cubit in length, so it means about 18 inches. And so if you're a right-handed swordsman, you would grab from your left hand to draw a sword. And so because he was left-handed, he th- put it onto his right side. So you draw across the body. And so King Aegon, which we find out he's a very fat man, maybe imagine the job of the hut. Somebody shared that once, and I cannot get the image out of my head anymore. So I think like Luke Skywalker or Han Solo going to Jabba the Hutt this way. So you have this huge fat guy there. And then, so when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. So one of the things that caught me in this story is, in my mind when I was thinking about the story that I read so much when I was a junior high boy, is like they did the tribute, he was there, then he stabbed the king at that time. But he actually left King Eglon, and he took his people away from the king. I don't know if it was to protect him or if he was going to do fight him then, but decided not to. I don't, don't, I don't really know what that looks like. But the author in Judges points out at Gilgal. So I'm going to read a passage from Joshua. It's in your notes. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed of its banks as before. This is when the Israelites were passing into the promised land. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in the times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. That the hand of your Lord is mighty. So think of Ehud. He's passing 12 stones at I don't know if they turn them to idols or something of that nature, but those 12 stones were there. And he knew this passage. And looking at those 12 stones, it's not his hand he's mighty. This left-handed man that had no use of his right. But it's God's hand is mighty. 
Like if you look in your own life, like you think of the weaknesses that you have. Like I can't do that because of this or this. Or maybe because I made mistakes in my past and God can't use me because I'd made this mistake, I did this thing. Or even in the midst of like, maybe I'm suffering from the oppression or anxiety. <sighs> Who's mighty in your life? It's God. It's God working through you. Like the promises he gave the Israelites, he gives you promises today. And so I think of Ehud there, looking at these 12 stones. I don't know if he needed courage, but what God needed was someone who was being willing. Willing to go back to fight. Maybe to lose his life or whatever that might look like, he didn't know. But that the courage to be able to do what God asked them to do. I felt like sometimes God just is looking for someone who's willing. To say, okay, whatever it is, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Like just someone that will be there with whatever is going on in your life, whatever reasons that you might give yourself, like why I can't do it. Because God says that you can. That he'll make a way for you. So the rest of the story goes back, kills the king of Moab. And then he goes to, back to his people and says, I've killed King Moab, follow me. They follow him. One thing I really do love about this judge is he puts his life at risk first. I just think of those that, if you're a leader of a business, if you're a leader of a home group, if you're a leader of whatever it might be, your family, that sometimes is good for us as leaders to put ourselves at risk first. Always, so there's one thing that really bothers me a lot is when I hear someone talking and saying like, oh, you should do this and you should do this and you should do this and they don't do it themselves. Like, oh, you should go out and do this. Oh, you should go out and do this. I think as a leader, sometimes it's good for us to look at ourselves and say, am I doing that myself? Am I putting myself at risk first in some way, whatever it might look like? probably like one of the reasons why I keep loving this judge even more, even Ehud even more. Because before he put the Israelites in danger of war, he put himself in danger first. Corbin, let's skip to the very last first. So here's a, th- this kind of came out to me. So the very last verse goes, and the Lord, or, and the land had rest for 80 years. It was brought to my attention that the word rest is also can be translated in other ver- uh, um, translations for the word peace. And I'm like, okay, so the word peace, it must be shalom. So in Hebrew, the word shalom is used a ton when talking about peace. It's about completeness, about everything whole. And so like, that's must how they must in the, the, the writer must have ended this passage. But he doesn't use the word shalom. He uses a word called shakat instead. And it's this idea of peace of rest. And it kind of bothers me in some way of like, like why would the author use this verse? Because isn't the people supposed to be like, okay, God fixed it all. It's supposed to be all good now. But we know with stories coming up next, it wasn't. Like they had peace for a period of time. Violence and war, the ways of mankind, can bring us peace for a period of time, as long as you're on the winning side, that you can have peace. 
But sometimes in our own life, like when we cry out for peace, we want something different than that. Not the way of mankind. So I have four kids and two young boys, a six-year-old and a three-year-old. They fight all the time. They wrestle fight. They fight fight. Like, I remember just the other night, it was like probably the 12th time I told them, stop. Like, I went up and grabbed the smallest one and put him on the side of the room and grabbed the other one. But I was like, don't touch each other anymore. I think there's times in our life, like, we just want peace. Like, this idea of shakat, this rest. Like, look at your life right now, like, with pandemic and everything else. Maybe some sort of something else going on in your life. And like, oh God, all I want is just rest. I want all these problems just to go away, just have comfort again. I love how God answers the Israelites and gave them that. But sometimes we maybe we need a bit more. So I want to read this passage out of John. In this passage, the word peace comes up. It is the equivalent in Greek um, of the word shalom. So Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all these things and bring to you, to your remembrance, all the things I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as a world, the world gives to you, uh, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So peace I leave, to you, leave with you, my peace I give to you. In the midst of turmoil and trouble in your life and all these things going on, there's a peace that God brings to us, a peace that Christ has for us. And sometimes when we cry out, or we do want this idea of peace, of this, these problems go away, is maybe ask God for this peace that you can have in the midst of trouble. Because in the time when Jesus was alive, you had the Romans that were over the top of the Israelites. And those Jewish people, what they wanted a judge, like back then, to come. To someone to come rescue them from oppression. And it did not look like the savior that came didn't look like what they wanted. Because they wanted someone who was a king, who was a fighter, who was military, or something to push the Romans out to bring them peace. But a better answer came to them. A better deliverer, a better savior. One in the midst of everything going on in your life, you can have peace. That you can have that joy in the midst of your problems. We're going to have communion here in a second. There's a passage in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is an Old Testament passage talking about the coming of Christ. That with his wounds, we are healed.
this chastisement that brought us peace. That through what Christ did on the cross, that he brought us peace. So when you look to take communion together, that remember this time what Christ did for us. And to go back to the idea of the redemption cycle, he didn't do it because you are worthless, that you're evil. He did it because he loved you, because he wanted to share with you how much value that you have. That there is purpose and a plan for your life. That amidst everything going on where it might not make sense at the moment, that you have a God that will be willing to step in it with you. So you don't have to take communion with us right away. If you need a little moment for yourself, if you need to cry out to God because of whatever's going on in your life, or maybe you have a really hard time believing that this God that we talk about loves you that much. And you're wrestling with your own shame and stuff in your own life. You just need to talk to him about that. So when Jesus met his disciples before he was crucified, he took a piece of bread and broke it. This is his body. Let's remember him. He took a cup. My blood poured out for you. Let's remember him. Lord, we need, we need to be reminded of your love for us in the midst of our own struggles, in the midst of us feeling like we're failures sometimes, in the midst of this not knowing what tomorrow might bring for us. Let us be reminded that you're a God that does listen and does hear when we cry out. Lord, that we can trust you with our lives. That we can rely on you in our time of need. That you continue to show your people that it's your mighty hand that works in our life. In your name, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.